Greetings and welcome to the Boxing Esquire Podcast. Welcome back to another edition of the Boxing Esquire Podcast. Uh, this week we had uh, my friend and, and a great attorney and representative fighters, John Hornauer, on as a guest. John's represented a uh, mini Hall of Fame of, of great fighters, including uh, Lennox Lewis, the Klitschko brothers, Chris Bird, Roy Jones Jr., Floyd Mayweather, and uh, his latest is uh, another pound-for-pound entrant, uh, Vasil Lomachenko, who's got a, a big fight coming up Saturday against uh, Guillermo Rigondeaux. Uh, great conversation. I really enjoyed it, uh, and I hope you do too. I have one of the premier fighter representatives in the sport of boxing on the phone, Mr. John Hornauer. Uh, welcome to the Boxing Esquire podcast, John. Thank you, Kurt. How are you today? Great, 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 great. So uh, let's get right into it. I wanted to uh, just kind of let folks know where you're from. You're from the great Midwest. Um, so where, where, did you, where were you born? Where did you grow up? Uh, I grew up in uh, Schiller Park, Illinois, which is a suburb of Chicago, a lower middle class, um, non-diverse place, um, <laughs> which uh, certainly didn't set me up really well for, for boxing, but it, it was where it all started, to, to tell you the truth. Excellent, excellent. Just, uh, just you know, knowing a little bit about you, you so you, you were an athlete growing up, right? You played uh, both types of football, right? You played, uh, you played uh, gridiron football and uh, soccer as well, right? I only played American football. I didn't uh, really take up an interest in soccer until my daughter was born and, and started playing herself, and then I thought I should probably know if I'm going to be one of those crazy parents who's yelling. But, um, no, I played football, um, baseball, and... Uh, won a state championship my senior year in football, which was great, and decided because I wasn't a very big person that that should be the end of that, and so it was. Um, I went on from high school to Northwestern University and uh, then to law school, then back to Northwestern for uh, an MBA, and through the through that process, I ended up getting involved in boxing from a, on a tangential basis and then uh, permanently. Wow. So uh, when you say you got involved on a tangential basis, how did how did you get involved in, in the sport of boxing? Well, when I was a, in, a, in, in the Little League baseball, uh, one of my teammates' father was a, a boxing trainer, and he had a fighter who was going to fight Roberto Duran, and we were all excited. And so those were back in the days. I'm I'm a little longer in the tooth than most when you know we had ABC's Wild World of Sports and we had sure. Ali fights and, and George Foreman and Duran, so that was a big deal for us. And uh, the, the funny story was is when the guy actually realized who Roberto Duran was, he actually left the country and went back to wherever he was from because <laughs> he, he, he thought that was the better better decision than to fight Roberto Duran. Um, <laughs> but that that was really how, how it started. We you know, used to talk about boxing as kids. I think, you know, uh, I was from the generation that had that discussion with his dad about whether Muhammad Ali um, should be in the military or not, whether he should be able to fight in the ring and not fight for his country. So boxing back then was really a, a much bigger deal than it is now based on broadcast television exposure and just import in the culture. So, um, we're kind of becoming a little bit of a dying breed, but I hope that it's not uh, dead now and it won't be in the near future. 
Agreed, agreed. Well, you know, I mean, it, it's back on uh, what's kind of more mainstream TV now, uh, but we, I want to get into that later. But uh, let's get into the, uh, the, I mean, you've represented so many great fighters over the years. I mean, it's just an absolutely stellar list. Um, I figured I'd just start with the big guys, the heavyweights. Um, talk to me about representing Lennox Lewis. How were you introduced to, uh, to Lennox? Well, that that story started up my the first person I ever tried to help in boxing was uh Matthew Hilton who was from um, Montreal in Canada and uh Matthew had a contract with Don King and he asked uh I met him at a at a boxing match I was just a fan and he found out I was a lawyer and asked me if I could help and I really wasn't a very qualified to do so and I uh, brought a friend of my brother's in who had represented some guys in Chicago locally. And as it all was turning out, I was realizing that Matthew really couldn't take my advice that his um, father and his family had been had a longstanding relationship with Don King and, and Don King Productions. And I, I just felt that my voice really couldn't make a difference. And based on that, I stepped away and told Matthew I was going to be a, a fan and a friend, but I just didn't think it was right for me to try to be a lawyer and take money for something that I could have no impact on. And when and that was 1987-ish, and when Lennox came out of the Olympics in 88, having won a gold medal for Canada, he was asking some people in the media up in Canada who they might recommend to him as someone who could help him out and, and you know some kind of a fresh look. And one of the Reporters up there mentioned me and how he thought it was stand-up-ish that I walked away from the Hilton situation the way I did, and um, I got a call from Lennox and went up there and met him and came back, and then I got a call from him when I got back to Chicago, and he said, yeah, you know, um, I really liked the meeting, and I said, so did I, and he says, you know, you're the first person who met with me and didn't ask me to sign something, and I said, well, you know, if I can do what I think I can do, then we'll work together. And if I can't, why should you be obliged? So that's where it all started. That was um, late 1988. Um, he entrusted me with taking him around to meet everybody, and that's what we did. We went and met with Bob Arum and Emmanuel Stewart and every other promoter, Mickey Duff and Jarvis Astaire at Wembley um, in England because Lennox was born over there. So we did the full tour of people. He went to uh, main events camp, Lou Duva and that group. So, you know, we pretty much took a look at everyone and, and I was in my final stages of getting my MBA at Kellogg in uh, Northwestern and we made it into a group project of where Lennox Lewis would be best served to turn professional. And in our studies and, and, and examination of the boxing industry and his unique features and the competition, we all decided that the best place would be England, and lo and behold, that's where it turned out to be. Wow, so Lennox Lewis was a case study for MBA students. That's that's pretty awesome. Yeah, he was. Yeah, I'm, not sure, I'm not sure even he remembers that, but yeah, that was it was an interesting thing because it was basically looking at it saying, you know, you have North America, you had Riddick Bowe coming out, and you had Ray Mercer and a, and a, and a, a, a lot of fighters there. And in England, you had Bruno and uh, Gary Mason at the time, and I think uh, Francesco Damiani was the European champion. And we're looking at it saying, wow, you know, I remember getting off a plane with Lennox um, in England, and Bruno had just lost to Mike Tyson, and all we heard is, you know, didn't Frank fight bravely? And I was like, 
I turned to Lennox and I said, man, can you imagine how these people would be if you won? <laughs> <laughs> you know, and then, you know, it, 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 no disrespect to Frank Bruno, but I mean, that, it was like, wow, you know, he was really got a lot of support and positive feedback, and then he just kind of got blown away by Tyson. And I was like, oh, man, this is a pretty interesting opportunity if, if it can be done in the right way. So, um, you know, we were, you know, open, like I said, open to everything, and... Uh, yeah, we, we we came up with a really uh, a great deal for Lennox over there. It wasn't one that was driven by absolute dollars per se, but it had a a nice combination of of a financial aspect, a control of his career, um, getting the right trainers in from what we felt was best to get them from the states to come and live in England and commit to training him there. A commitment to to doing fights both in America, North America, and in England and Europe to kind of give him the the the, the multifaceted aspect that we were hoping in to make him in a, into a world champion and, and start the process out that way. So he did his debut in England and did his next fight in Atlantic City and then back and forth for a while until we finally started to settle a little bit more in in Europe in the early part of his career and then the rest of it took off later on. That's really interesting that, uh, you know, going back to what you, the people you shopped him to, because initially you did shop him to Emmanuel Stewart, who, who would eventually uh, work with him. Um, but the, the trainer you settled on, was it, um, it was John Davenport initially, right? It's a name a lot, yes, a lot of was, people know. Yeah. Right. Why John Davenport? Yeah. You know, John Davenport was, uh, first of all, he was a very much a disciplinarian, and, and one of the things with, with heavyweights is they're a little bit like the your, your big cats at the, at the, at the zoo. Where they're a little bit different and, and kind of uh, need a little bit of a, uh, a motivation every once in a while. Um, the other thing was we felt that Davenport was a teacher. One thing, you know, Lennox had had the experience of being in two Olympic games and, um, you know, and, and was 24 years old when he was turning pro, but we still felt that he needed to add a lot to his style to make him a complete professional fighter and um, felt that Davenport would be very good at um, teaching him, be dedicated to, to that one fighter and, and that cause. And, you know, John had trained Harold Knight and, and um Garland and then a bunch of guys in, in in the New Jersey area, and he had the reputation of not only being a very good teacher but a disciplinarian and, and pretty you know straightforward and a guy who really didn't need a lot of publicity and, and pats on the back. He did his job, and uh, it, it was a very fruitful and and, and good uh, first stage of Lennox's career. Yeah, it's interesting because you uh, you went with a very colorful uh, promoter over there who I understand got some investors together. Frank Maloney. How how was it to deal with uh, Frank Maloney? You know, Frank was a. An, an, a it, it really wasn't Frank to begin with. Um, the 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 first call that was made back to England on that behalf, we were actually Lennox and I were out in Las Vegas meeting with uh, Mickey Duff and Jarvis Astaire and a reporter. Um, and photographer uh, recognized Lennox having fought in the Commonwealth Games and phoned back to um, what was then the Levitt group. It was Frank Maloney and uh, Ambrose Mendy were working with Nigel Benn. Right. And they said, hey, you know, there's this guy, you know, Lennox Lewis, gold medalist. He's available to talk to. Would you guys be interested? And the first call actually went to Ambrose, and Ambrose you know, related to Frank, Frank related to the people who were getting behind Ben, and that's the group that eventually uh, put up the money to 
um, bring Lennox over. You know, we we thought that Frank was a. Um, I think Frank Frank had his, his strengths and his weaknesses. Frank was a very diligent and hardworking guy, and someone who was very excited about the prospect and didn't come with a lot of uh, baggage and, and history. Like Mickey was, Mickey had Bruno and had uh, Mason, and we weren't really looking to get in line. Mm-hmm. Um, and and Frank was pretty much a matchmaker who was known for making tough fights and 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 a, a guy on the ground, and we felt that. Maloney would be a, a good person to have there, but wouldn't be a person who would not be willing to listen to our side of the story and what we wanted to do. So it, it did work out that way. Interesting. Yeah, I, I saw a couple of the the early fights were also promoted or co-promoted by um, Barry Hearn at Matchroom, uh, Eddie Hearn's dad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, we had a... We, yeah, Barry got involved because he had TV at the time with ITV, and he had matchroom boxing, and he had, uh, you know, that that super middleweight division was was pretty active at the time as well. And and uh, no, Barry was a was and is a great businessman, a, a great sports person. Um, I can't say we didn't butt heads a few times. One of the one of the funny stories was I was in a car with Maloney, and he had Barry on the on the speaker phone, and Barry was bemoaning my turning down uh, Mike Hunter as an opponent for Lennox for a fight and, you know, how they needed to get rid of me because I was a, a, a problem, and I'm just sitting there listening <laughs> to it. Um, <laughs> and, and I was like, "Now nah, you can fight Mike, Mike, Mike Hunter in the gym, but we're not going to do him as an opponent. We got somebody else. But, you know, that's... I don't blame you. you. Mike, Mike the Bounty Hunter was about as awkward a heavyweight yeah, he as he could get. Yeah, he was a tough guy. <laughs> tough, tough guy, yeah. And, and you know, with, with, with me it was fights are there to especially in early stage of a guy's career the fights are there for you to perform and 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 show off a little bit and where you learned was in the gym and you know having good sparring and 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 positive experiences in the gym is where you're going to learn and grow and then go take that what you've learned and and show it off in those fights so um it was just it was just you know a, a few of those times barry was very supportive very good to work with that that's just one story of as you know you know it's you know not every group and 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 um individual agrees with the other on these things and you know luckily and fortunately for me at the time I had Lennox's ear and his trust and that's how it rolled that's great it's great well listen you you guys got some great wins uh, early on i mean gary mason people forget about him he was a really tough heavyweight and undefeated had about three times as much experience as lennox at the time and i encourage anyone to go uh watch that fight on youtube very very competitive rugged fight um that yeah lennox you know that through. was that was one that 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 mickey and his group were they they felt that we were rushing Lewis, you know, that they might be getting Lewis early and it's kinda like what people do with Joshua now they're saying, uh, he's not ready for it, you know, and right. and uh for that big challenge. But Mason was the big knockout artist and uh, a good guy too. Um but but Mickey, uh, I'll never forget we went to a uh uh, broadcast of Mike Tyson and Alex Stewart, and uh, Frank Bruno was doing the commentary with with Lennox, and Mickey walked in with Frank, and he's like, you know, come on over here, you're ne- you know, you guys are never going to do this fight, and I said, yeah, Lennox wants it, you know, this is something he really wants, and I think Mickey was a bit shocked, but Lennox was always up for challenges. I mean, we we kind of had to hold him back, and uh, and and say, listen, do this the right way, be patient, 
you know, take it fight by fight and, 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 and do it as a learning experience. But Lennox had already won the uh, the European title in the fight prior uh, against a guy named Jean Chanet. And so he's like, yeah, man, I want to go in and fight Gary Mason. So we did that at Wembley. And it was almost like Lennox had too much success early in the fight because I think he's kind of like, is that it? And then Gary Mason came on and started uh coming back and Lennox said, uh, wait a minute, I better get on get out of my stick here and uh he stopped Gary uh mid to late rounds in the in the fight and it was a great win for him. Yeah, yeah, it was a, definitely a great fight. I hadn't I hadn't actually seen it until maybe about a year ago. Um and you know I was like, Oh, is this on YouTube? I was wanted to see this fight. It was a really competitive fight. It's a great fight. So at a certain point, um I guess with early ninety two there was a fight in the States where Lennox Fought a very tough guy who pretty much fought everybody in the in the eighties and the nineties, Levi Billups, and uh, wasn't one of Lennox's better performances. And and you guys uh, replaced John Davenport um, with Pepe Correa, right? Yeah, that was Lennox's call. Um, basically, what what happened there was it, it was one of those situations where Michael Moore. There was a triple header on HBO, and and we ended up with Levi Billups, who we knew thought was a bad opponent for Lennox. Michael Moore basically fought the guy we should have fought. We fought the we 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 fought the guy Lennox that, with Lennox that Michael Moore should have fought, and uh, nobody looked that great that night. And um, what had happened there was, you know, John, like I said, was was a disciplinarian but he was and there was no give and i think that you know lennox was getting a little bit you know impatient he really wanted to uh spread his wings john wanted him to continue to learn um lennox's uh girlfriend at the time had a an internship in Washington D.C. and he would go out there and visit, and Pepe Correa would see him around and, you know, tell him how he's really, you know, Muhammad Ali and should be boxing more and blah 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 blah. So you know, Lennox heard what he wanted to hear, and uh, that's what he wanted to do. And we always looked at Lennox more like a, a young George Foreman who was more a, a puncher boxer rather than a boxer puncher. And Lennox, you know, like everybody else of that era, thought they were. Uh, a boxer puncher, and that's really the way he wanted to go, and that's what Pepe wanted to um, instill in him. And Pepe, at the time, was training one of the best uh, boxer punchers of all time, Sugar Ray Leonard, so I'm sure that was another motivation for Lennox to try and get on the uh, Pepe Korea team. Uh, I guess, yeah. That, that was that was one of Pepe's calling cards. So, um, you know, it it was, again, everything work, works for a reason. I think that uh, Lennox took away a, a lot during the Pepe era. Um, Pepe was a little bit more flamboyant and out there for, out for Pepe than John Davenport was, but that's part and parcel of what you get. He was... Uh, Again, he was he was dedicated to to Lennox's success because Lennox Lennox's success was his success. Right. So later that year, you guys uh, had gotten in position to uh, fight an eliminator. As it initially, it was an eliminator with Razor Ruddick, and I know that there were a, a, many different promoters involved in that one, including was it Don King, Murad Muhammad? Talk to me about those negotiations and uh, your memories of that fight. Well, that was a time when I think Tyson had gone away and there was all this 
speculation as to who was the best heavyweight out there, and I think everybody, the the vast majority of the people thought it was Razor Ruddock because he had had the two fights with Mike, and 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 you know very they were very competitive, and then there was Lennox, and there was Bo, and there was Holyfield, and, and other guys, but that was really the 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 guy I think Ring Magazine did a poll, and it was like Ruddock's the best. He's going to want to come out of this, and um, what people didn't know is that Lennox and Ruddock had sparred with each other as amateurs and had you know been around each other and one of the sore stories was there was a couple of things that that went on between them that didn't sit well with Lennox one of them being some sparring before the Olympics where Ruddock showed up and then he didn't show up and Lennox kind of holds grudges so uh you know that that was a fight uh, another fight that he really wanted um and so be it. HBO came over. It's one of those unique situations where they actually did a double header. I think Meldrick Taylor fought on the card as well. Right. And uh, but it was a, it was a great night. I mean, you know, Ruddick and Lennox walked out to the middle of the ring, and I'll never forget the uh, one of the reporters asked Lennox afterwards. You know, I saw Razor Ruddick said something to you in the middle of the ring. What did he say? And he says, uh, so we meet again. And they go, um, what was your reply? He says, I knocked him down three times. <laughs> you know, so <laughs> that, was, that was a big, big win. That was, that was the re- a real breakthrough fight um, on the international uh, level for Lennox. Absolutely. I mean, he, I mean, Razor at the time had been, you know, you know neck and neck with Mike Tyson, giving Mike t- two really tough fights, and, and Lennox just walked through him. And, yeah, he obliterated him. Like I said, that's one thing with Lennox. A focused Lennox Lewis was incredibly, incredibly dangerous. I mean, he he lost two fights in his career, and I think he lost those on his own. Um, you know, I, I kind of blame him himself more than I give credit to the other guys. Maybe that's not fair to McCall and to. Uh, Rockman. Rockman, but uh, you know, a motivated Lennox Lewis is a bad man. He really was a. Uh, he, he had physical ability, and you know, in, in spite of the accent and, and the and the pinky up with the teacup on the HBO commercial, he uh, Lennox was very competitive and and had a had quite a quite a, a nasty streak when he had to, which is what you need as a boxer. Absolutely, absolutely. So that that set up the. Uh... The classic, um, what what people looked forward to was was the rematch uh, of the uh, nineteen eighty eight Olympic final with Riddick Bowe. Um, Bowe beats Holyfield. You know he's got all the belts. Lennox is is next up as the BC number one contender, and then the fight doesn't happen. Uh, what, do you remember? Do you recall how all that played out at the time? Yeah, I remember having meetings at HBO's offices, and Rock Newman was there, and. Um, Milt Schwaski on their side, and Frank and myself, and the people from main events. I mean, it was, it was more, um, in my opinion, at the time, HBO would preferred to have Riddick Bowe as their champion, a New York guy with a story, um, and not an English guy, Lennox Lewis, as they saw it, a foreigner. And instead of forcing that fight to happen and putting the money up, they offered Riddick Bowe a multi-fight deal, which I. And I think he his first uh, defense was against Michael Dokes, and and they kind of gave him a a platform to go out there and fight whoever he wanted. As Rock Newman tried to do the Riddick Bowe World Tour, you know, going to see the Pope and going to South Africa and all that, to, and all that did was make us angry that we weren't getting the support that we thought we should, and 
forcing a guy into a fight that Lennox really wanted. And, uh, you know, it was just the fight that, that, that was never going to happen, I guess. It was just ill-fated. Definitely, definitely. Of course, you know, them you know, tossing the BC belt in the trash didn't help matters either. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, uh, it, it is what it is. I mean, we took the belt out of the trash and, uh, Lennox was awarded the belt based on his win over Ruddick and then, uh, onto a, uh, fight with Tony Tucker, which went to a purse bid and, and Mr. King stepped up and bid north of $12 million for the fight. And Lennox got his first major payday of his career. Right, Tony Tucker, and uh, you know Don had great expectations that Tucker would get the job done. I'm sure, and uh, and and Lennox handled him uh, about as easy as Tyson did. <laughs> he dominated. Well, listen, Tony was a Tony was a big talented guy. I mean that you know that was never going to be an easy fight for anybody. And uh, you know one of the things with Lennox is he was you know he 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 had a funny streak when he was in training for that camp. I had sent Danelle Nicholson, who was one of the uh, U.S. Olympians in '92, and you know he, he he was just coming out, and and I sent him into camp as as a you know taller boxer type guy to to spar with Lennox. Well, if God forbid I send someone to camp because Lennox would take it as some kind of personal challenge, and in the process of sparring with Danell, he actually tore a ligament in his uh, pinky finger on his right hand. But seeing how he was going to make nine million dollars he's like um i'm fighting you know that, that that was not that was not getting addressed until after the fight so um you know he he went in there you know not a hundred percent but i don't think a lot of fighters go in a hundred percent to fights oftentimes and you know went in there and did, did the job yeah i don't think people credit uh lennox for being as gritty as 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 he really was i mean he showed that you know and then in the mercer fight and you know came back from being hurt when he fought bruno but you know, to me, I mean, when when Mike Tyson, uh, you know, years later, bit that uh, piece out of his leg, and he still went forward with that fight, I'm like, yeah. Listen, listen, listen. Lennox and I weren't working together anymore at the time, but we had reconciled our our little personal deal. I mean, he's like pulling his pants down. John, the man bit me. Look at the look at the teeth marks. I got a scar. You know, <laughs> and uh, you know that uh, yeah, he 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 was pretty much in disbelief about that as well, but. Uh, yeah, no, listen, Lennox Lewis, you know, he, he's, I don't care what, what people, what, what positive people say, I, say I, I don't think that they give him the due that he really deserves as, as, a, as a heavyweight champion. The guy was really good. Um, and based on Davenport's teachings, you know, he wasn't unable to fight on the inside. That's one of the things we really tried to work on early on is, is he, you know, had that big frame and, and wanted to box on the outside. We tried to make him as complete a fighter as possible moving forward, and I think it all paid dividends down the line. Um, you know, what came next is he had a little bit of a reign as champion, then he ran into uh, Oliver McCall, who ironically was trained by Emmanuel Stewart. And um, Lennox suffered his first defeat, and I think all of us were not really shocked because everybody had kind of gotten big-headed. Um, you know, I, I was no um, big fan of Pepe Correa to be, you know, respectful. I was a John Davenport guy. I was disappointed that that went down the way it did. Um, I thought Pepe was a good motivator and a good talker and, and, and was great at press conferences and he was probably decent in the gym. Um, but I wasn't the, the biggest fan of his and 
Lennox went in against uh, Oliver McCall, thinking it was going to be a walk in the park, and you know Oliver landed first. And uh, after the fight, though, I'll, I'll never forget it. Emmanuel Stewart, while everybody in in that camp was jumping around in the ring congratulating Oliver McCall, Emmanuel, you know, just put his bucket down, walked around the ring, and came over to me at ringside and said, "You know, that that's a shame that that just happened because he's still the best heavyweight in the world." Mm. Wow. And I was like, wow. So, you know, two days later, I get a call from Lennox, like, yeah, yeah, you know, uh, I'm, I'm going to fire Pepe. And I'm like, yeah, okay. And he says, who do you think I should hire? And I said, Emmanuel. Man, he was just in the corner of the guy who beat me. How could you say that? And I said, well, who better than the guy who could beat you so easily? <laughs> you know, you know. I mean, seriously, I said, you know, and then we went back to, remember, in, you know, 89, we met with him and Aram and the gym in Vegas, and he's always wanted to work with you. Why not? And that was a bit of a process of getting Emmanuel in because a lot of people were negative toward Emmanuel at the time because he had been working with Don King fighters and, you know, Emmanuel's Emmanuel and he's not controllable, et cetera, et cetera. A few people wanted guys like Richie Giacchetti and um, there were other trainers who um, were auditioned and... At the end of the day, um, I was really happy that we were able to to get a manual in there because it was done pretty much against most of the people who were involved uh, opinion, and that was a, a Lennox Lewis deal that he did with me and a, a few other close guys in his camp, saying, "No, Manuel's the right guy." Absolutely. Well, Manuel is kind of at the at the height of his powers at that point because he he takes Oliver McCall and beats Lennox Lewis, then. A few years later, takes Lennox Lewis and beats Oliver McCall. <laughs> he came in as kind of a hired gun for Julio Cesar Chavez, and Chavez turns around his defeat to Frankie Randall. He takes well, yeah, that was the, that was the rumor. I mean, they had takes Holyfield you know, and Oliver beats Bo in the rematch. Oliver and Julio <laughs> had had supposed issues, and Emmanuel had taken them both off to some remote camp in Mexico somewhere where no one could get to them, and. Um, you know that, and and we we had had a discussion. I, I wanted Lennox to fight McCall the fight before, and main events and HBO wanted him to fight uh, another fight before he went to that mandatory because he was with King and they wanted to stay away from him. Well, you know they decided to do the Phil Jackson fight instead, and you know I felt that they gave Oliver eight months to get right, and unfortunately that seemed to be true. Now, I'm not sure that Oliver could ever be 100% right, but he was right <laughs> enough on that night. Yeah, yeah, he was sharp. You could see it in the first round. I mean, he was he was about as sharp as he could be. Um, very strong, dangerous guy at all times. So, mm -hmm. um, be, now, I guess now with Emmanuel, he, he gets a couple of wins, and then and then you parted ways after the uh, Mercer fight with uh, with Lennox. So what was, what was the story behind that? Well, there... You know, as with every relationship, things kind of come to a head. Um, a lot, there were a lot of people who didn't like the influence that I had on Lennox, the fact that I had won the Emmanuel Stewart argument and was continuing to have a big influence on Lennox. Um, just being honest, you know, uh, the, there were some people at HBO who didn't like the fact that I um, – gave my opinion to Lennox that I thought that they favored Bo over him and that that's why the fight didn't happen and he wasn't pleased with that and you know and instead of being grateful for what he had I was more blaming why he didn't have all the belts and um, uh, there's only so much 
pressure and 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 uh, that 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 boxers can take eventually they're like you know what this is just too much too much work so that's pretty much what happened i mean it was it was one of those things where afterwards like i'm not really sure what i did and and he really couldn't explain it which is why a few years later you know we we kind of just like you know drew the line in the sand, walked over it, and said, hey, whatever, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's just, it's, you know, life's too short. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it was it was disappointing. It was a time in my life um, where, you know, I, I thought that Lennox was going to become a big star and, and really, really take it to the next level, and, and I'm out. It's one of those um, boxing stories I always tell people. It's like, you, know, you plant the seed, you water it, you tend the, the 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 tree. The tree bears fruit, and all of a sudden, someone else comes and picks the fruit. Mm, yeah, and you know, unfortunately, that does happen, and all the time. <laughs> yeah, all the time, and 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 all you can really do is, at the end of the day, just say, you know, you, you take the positives from it, you learn lessons. Um, and I, I, I obviously could have done a lot of things better and differently. Um. But I always prided myself on just being honest and, and giving him, you know, the the best advice I could. You know, I think part of some some of the better things that would happen was afterwards his mother would come to me and say, "You you were right," you know, and I say something like, "You know, it's not going to send my daughter to college," you know. <laughs> <laughs> and, and 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 you know, at the end of the day, you just want to see no matter how it fell out, you you always want to root for the guy because you started with him. You know, it was it was you remember those days when it was you, him, and his mom living in a little house in Crayford, England. You know, at the start of his career, and I remember his mom one, you know, once a couple of years later saying, you know, where did all these people come from? You know, and I was like, well, you have to ask your son. <laughs> I, I, I don't, I don't know either. I don't know a lot, a lot of them and, and who they are, but you know that that that's just part of uh, the evolution of of boxers and 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 how they roll. So you know, I was lucky enough right then to uh, to to get a recommendation uh, on a guy named Chris Bird and and was able to transition over to him and and it, it taught me a lesson that one of the things is you know you never really want to be someplace that you're not wanted mm-hmm. and what i decided then and it's been a little bit of a a mantra of mine is you know even if someone's at the top if it's not going well or the relationship is you know like getting resentful and nasty or whatever you just say you know i'd rather go and work with five other guys who might become you and who will appreciate what I do, but then stay here and have someone say, you know, oh man, I got to pay this dude. Right, right, absolutely. Life's too short. Yeah, life is too short, and you know, and, and it's funny. It's like, well, you know, there, you know, people have written books about Lennox and this and that, and like, you know, what happened, and and uh, one guy asked me a question once. He says to me, you know, do you think money changed Lennox Lewis? And I was like, dude, you know. Money changes everyone. Of course, it changed him. And I said, I have you know twenty other clients who want to know if it's going to change them. Right. You know, it, it, it happens. And you know, with the, aunt, the the people who come around and you know want to be entourage and family members and you know other people who want to come and be influential, it's always that person who's closest who takes the most hits. I mean, you know, I watched it with for years and years with Floyd with Leonard Ellerby. I mean, people are always like, Leonard's fired, Leonard's in, Leonard's out, Leonard's in, Leonard's out. I mean, the dude was there from the beginning, you know, and it was always there for Floyd's best interests, yet everybody else who came around wanted to be that guy who was closest. Absolutely. And it's a tough, tough position to be in when you are that person. So, you know. 
you're the target. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, you mentioned uh, one of my absolute favorite people in the, in the boxing business, Chris Bird. Um, how did you, uh, how did you hook up with Chris? Um, yeah, that, that's a great question. I'm not sure how, how it actually, I, I can't rem- recall. I probably, Chris would know cause he has the most incredible memory of anyone. But all, all I know is that, that, you know, I, I got a call and, and someone wanted me to work with Chris Bird. So we went out to our, to our first fight, um, and uh, I'll never forget because Bill Caton walked up to my wife Sandra and said, "So Sandra, how's how's working with the birds?" And Sandra said, "You know how it is, Mister Caton. It's always nice in the beginning." <laughs> and uh, <laughs> one of the one of the great boxing quotes that no one knows. Um, but you know, listen, Chris. Chris is one of those guys who was so excited and and was moving up the, uh, up the ladder. And I'm like looking at this guy saying, "This is a heavyweight champion." I just worked with Lennox Lewis. That's a heavyweight. This is not a heavyweight. But he was so incredibly skilled and so sharp and and so different. Um, and uh, I was working with Roy Jones at the same time. Um, and you know, Roy was probably 168 pounds at the time. And I'm looking at it saying, "Wow, this guy's bringing like." like Roy Jones type skills to the heavyweight division and that's how we surviving and, and, and thriving and it was just really a, an incredible thing and one of the things I said to uh, Chris and his wife Tracy at the time was you know I just came out of this relationship with Lennox Lewis I don't want you to expect that we're ever going to be close you know <laughs> I put up the big the big defense you know and and uh, you know our kids grew up together and uh, we, we still talk frequently so you know that all went out the window um but, well, yeah, Trace, yeah, Tracy's awesome. Yeah, Chris is awesome. They're they're great people. They are. Such- you know, they're just it's a great boxing family. You know, it was one of those things where, you know, the father, the mother, the brothers, everybody was involved, the sisters, and, and, it, <laughs> and it was a family. And you know, and and that's not supposed to work. And right. In their case, you know, up until you know, darn near the end, it did. And uh, you know, it's a credit to all of them, um, and uh, especially to Chris because he's just the dude. You know, he's just uh, all Chris wanted to do is fight. Absolutely, I mean, we, that that that's the guy we had to hold back. I mean, you know, he, you know, Chris Bird versus King Kong. He's like frothing at the mouth. Like, yeah, yeah, I want to fight him. You know, I'm like, you know, you're crazy. You know? <laughs> but you know, that was Chris. It was all about competition. Yeah, I want to go compete. I want to go compete. I mean, you know, this guy fought. It's like I'll never forget. We were at the at the. Lennox Lewis Vitali Klitschko fight, and we were sitting there in HBO. We got tickets from HBO, and it was um, the Wayans brothers. And the Damon Wayans looked at Chris, and he looked, he looked, I'm looking out at that dude, Vitali Klitschko. You got in the ring with him? Are you crazy? <laughs> you know, <laughs> are you nuts? <laughs> Why did you get in the ring with him? You know, you're not bigger than I am. And Chris is like, eh, you know, that's what I do. <laughs> so, uh, you know, that's that's Chris. I mean, he fought the Klitschko's. He fought, uh, you know, David Tua and Evander Holyfield and and everybody else who who wanted to wanted to fight. Well, yeah, that's that's and there's one guy you didn't mention who I, I definitely wanted to to hear your uh, take on this was that was the man who nobody wanted to fight at the time, Ike Bayabuchi. Um, Ike Bayabuchi, yeah, that was that was a crazy fight. I mean, that was one where, you know, Chris was so overconfident <laughs> i mean one of the things that people don't know is you know i was like okay we're gonna we're gonna try to you know even the playing field here because this guy's a killer um you know let's and i got them to get a 24 foot ring and we showed up and 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 
IBUCHI's people are going crazy, like, you know, what's this going on, and blah, 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 blah. Mr. Bird pointed to the Budweiser signs in the corners. It's like, Chris, I'm like, those are your ropes. You know, you don't, that, that, you've got plenty of room here to work and all that. And, you know, what does Chris do? He's like, embarrassing him the first two rounds, you know, like, you know, like IBUCHI can't hit him in the butt. And all of a sudden, you know, Chris decides he's going to go to the ropes. <laughs> well, <laughs> ding, ding, ding. Yeah, yeah. You know, <laughs> bad move and after the fight he's like he's like i'm sorry i'm sorry you know i let everybody down and i said well you know chris you know um i'm not the one who's not going to make a million dollars a fight next fight you are right <laughs> you know right. That, that's your fault you know so there's consequences and you know but that was you know that was chris he just he he he's one of the few people you know i i you know that's that saying out there i've said it a long time is you don't play boxing chris bird played boxing that's what he did. He just loved it. He loved to spar. He loved to fight. He loved to watch boxing. I mean, the the, the guy was just a hundred percent boxing man, and that's that that's how he was, and and he was very good at it. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, it's funny because I he's like uh, I think I met him in like two thousand, and at the time I was I was writing for a website, and he was like one of the the first big fighters I interviewed, and. And I remember it was just such a, he just loved talking boxing. Like Tracy had to like pull him away, you know, cause he, he could talk boxing like all night. He just, he just ate, slept and lived boxing. So he was, you know, some, some of the, some of the best times with Chris would be to watch him interact with guys who he'd been in the amateurs with like Shane Mosley or Lehman Brewster and guys. I mean, they used to just, and, 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 uh, they used to just sit there and laugh and laugh and laugh and talk and laugh about their trips, you know, cause he was on that Olympic team with, Right. With Oscar and you know Raul Marquez and and uh, Timmy Austin and you know it, it, it was just a, a great group um, and uh, yeah I mean that, that 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 was Chris he he would he was he he's one of those guys who would sit under the streetlight and talk to you and you know until till the till dawn absolutely absolutely now it's interesting I mean you you were representing uh, Chris and Roy at the same time and uh, I remember. Um, trying to agitate with those two guys. I remember one of the boxing writers' dinners, I got them to take a picture together, and I was like, you guys, he said, you know, this, this is a super fight right here, <laughs> right here. This is like super skills, you know, two guys, the two most skilled guys in boxing. Um, the closest I would think that that may have come to pass was when uh, Roy was looking to, to fight for the heavyweight title. Eventually he fought John Ruiz, but Chris had just won the IBF title back at that time, right? He had just beaten uh, Evander. Actually, the the closest that ever came is like really the late in, in Chris's career when he moved back down uh, in weight. Okay. Because what he was doing, he was trying to like he went from heavyweight and he's like, I'm going to go all the way down to light heavyweight to try to get a Roy Jones fight, the fight that should have happened. And in the process, unbeknownst to any of us, it's like I'll never forget he was at the weigh-in and the pictures come up and then the Klitschko's called me and they say, Does Chris have AIDS? <laughs> I said, you, know, you know, his bird's sick, you know, we really like Chris, is he sick, is he okay? And I'm like, man, you know, because you looked at him and it's, 
you know, and 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 that fight was just horrible. I mean, he went yeah, down in that first round, and I turned to Tracy and I said, "I don't care if he wins this fight; he can't do this anymore." Yeah, you know, this is crazy. But he didn't have his dad in camp, and and I mean, that's why the fight went so long because his father was refusing to to call the fight off because he was mad because he wasn't in camp. So he's like letting you know, and I'm like screaming, "Stop the fight!" And the commission's like pointing pointing, you know, to me, like, look, John's saying stop the fight, stop the fight. And Patrick, <laughs> his brother, started going up the steps, and his dad grabbed him. Wow. Pulled him back down, you know. I was like, no, let him let him, let him, him take his, you know, he's going to be the boss. Well, you know, it was like that. Oh, wow. And, uh, you know, but that, that that's, where, that's where Chris was headed. I mean, with Roy, Roy, we, we tried to actually get him a heavyweight title fight earlier because the guy we had targeted um, was Michael Moore. And I'll never forget getting a call from John Davamos, and he's like, stop it. <laughs> we're not fighting Roy Jones. There's just no way we're <laughs> fighting Roy Jones. And they went on to fight George Foreman and lost. Mm. Now, you know, there's no way Roy Jones is fighting George Foreman. Right. But that was the guy we had targeted. And then when the Ruiz thing came up, it's like, yeah, him. Let's go after that. Right. Because, you know, listen, when you have a smaller heavyweight, you know, and, and that's what Roy, you know, where was going to be coming up? I mean, I'm, I first met him. He was fighting 154 pounds. Right. You're saying, you know, there there are heavyweights you can fight, and then there are heavyweights you can't fight and shouldn't fight. And the Ruiz one was, you know, John Ruiz was still a really big guy and a talented fighter, um, winning titles and having all those great fights with Holyfield. Um, so it was it was a bit of a risk, but that's the that's the guy we felt that Roy um, could get over on. But before that, it was Michael Moore. That's that's the guy I really wanted for him. Ah. So yeah, let's let's talk about Roy. I mean, you you represented him uh, pretty much when he made started making his run uh, to be the top pound for pound fighter in the world. Um, you you started with him for his the fight with Jorge Castro, future uh, world champion Jorge Castro. Right. Um, I was really fortunate enough to, to be brought in by Stanley and Fred Levin. Stanley mostly, um, probably still the nicest person I've ever met in boxing, and, and a guy who really, really cared about Roy Jones. And um, he was the one who, you know, behind starting Square Ring and making sure that, you know, once you know, you know, they, they had gotten whatever they had put into the proposition to make sure that Roy was became the owner of Square Ring. I mean, just really, really good people very generous um uh, but very caring and very protective of Roy to the point where you know when Roy and his dad fell out you know Stanley was you know everybody was with little Roy you know and and uh, that caused a problem with big Roy and people in Pensacola where they all lived but but Stanley was really um was really great and with Roy I mean I'll never forget when Roy was uh I think it was very early in his career. One of their fighters was fighting Gianfranco Rossi over in Italy on NBC, and I'll never forget Roy Jones was carrying the, the belt into the ring. And I turned to my wife and said, oh, there's the most talented guy in that whole arena right there <laughs> holding that belt. And, uh, you know, I, I just... I just really liked his style, and 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 you know, I'll tell you who who reminds me a little bit of Roy now is is Earl Spence, is that kind of uh, that that kind of guy with that kind of attitude and mentality and positivity. You know, Roy just had fun, and he worked his butt off. I mean, that that's a guy who you would want to go and watch him work out. Mm-hmm. You know, I would pay to watch Roy Jones work out. It was just phenomenal. 
Yeah, just, Jim, and, and I, you know, it, but it was so special because his father had instilled in him a style that just really couldn't be duplicated, which all the other kids in that gym found out. You know, everyone tried to be like Roy, and there was only one Roy. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, and then when, uh, you know, the the whole thing went down with his dad and him walking away, I'll never forget, we're sitting there and every, as you say, it was Emmanuel and Pepe Correa, every big trainer in the world wanted to work with Roy Jones, and he's like, you know, talk to everybody, and he finally says, I'm going to hire Coach Merck. And I said, why Merck? And he says, well, you know, Merck knew me as an amateur, and, you know, he kind of knows what I'm about, and Merck's going to let Roy be Roy. <laughs> and, and I was like, you know what? Sometimes that was really, really astute on his part because when you look at things like as great a trainer as I believe the manual was, and 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 as much respect as I have for him, when you look at someone with a unique style like a Nassim Hamed, and they come in and they start working with a manual who's trying to make him into a better traditional fighter in some way, it just there's a disconnect. I mean, sometimes you got to let special be special. Right, right. Period. And, you know, you may not <laughs> you may not understand it, you may not like the look of it, but what Brendan Ingle created with Nassim Hamed, what Roy Jones Sr. created with Roy, with Little Roy, as we call him, you know, those, these were special. You know? Absolutely. It's just, it is what it is, man. It's, you know, it's different. And you, and, and, but we always kind of figured that this was so special and the reflexes were so good that, you know, we were like, well, you know, God forbid he ever slowed down because he doesn't really know. <laughs> he He's not, you know, traditionally, you know, taught and grounded that he's going to be able to rely on those fundamentals when he's not Roy Jones. Right. But, but, but the run he had was so special. I mean, that was like, like almost untouchable. No one like he, they, people couldn't win around. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, you, you had him, I mean, you know, pretty much from the time he beat James Tony through that, through that Ruiz fight. I mean, he was unquestionably, I mean, the, the, there was no question he was the best fighter in the world, pound for pound. Yeah, I mean, now you, you remember, I mean, he would play basketball, he would do all kinds of crazy stuff, you know, in a day of a fight, you know, just to try to make it fun. Absolutely. You know, competitive. I mean, it was, you know, he, he Roy, Roy Jones, that Roy Jones was the most special fighter I've ever seen. And, you know, and I've worked with a lot of really good fighters. There's, everybody has their strength, but from a standpoint of speed and power and, and dominance, and, and it was incredible. I mean, you know, you got a guy like Floyd who's the most fundamentally sound fighter I've ever seen right. and, and, and had the best ability in, in the ring to transition and make adjustments on his own. But Roy was just, boy, you know, you just couldn't touch it. Period. I don't care who you were. Absolutely, absolutely. Just one last question to to to, to put a, you know, a ribbon on Roy. Um, I, the only thing that bummed me out about Roy is that the, that Mikulshevsky fight never happened. What what I mean? How far did it get as far as negotiations go? And, and what was the big impediment to, to to not getting it done? We had talked about it. In fact, one of the ideas that I floated to, to Stanley and everybody was. Um, the possibility of going to fight Mischelschewski in the Olympic Stadium in Berlin in 1996 because it was the 60th anniversary of Jesse Owens and the whole thing, and why not do it? Uh, but at that point in time, Roy was still um, not comfortable leaving America. I mean, he had had such a bad um, a bad experience in, in Seoul at the Olympics that he still wasn't ready to go. 
and uh, Michalczewski wasn't ready to come to America. Joran Jones wasn't ready to go to Europe, and the fight never got made. Right, right, right. Yeah, well, obviously he had great reason not to. <laughs> I mean, it, well, I mean, listen, yeah, I mean, you, you couldn't you couldn't argue with, with with his you know experience and logic because it was what it was. I mean, we all saw what happened there, and you know, subsequently, and and and. When someone says I'm not comfortable, what do you do? You go 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 fight somewhere where you're not comfortable. When you're Roy Jones, I don't think so. <laughs> exactly, and being the pound for pound number one guy, you know he's going to dictate the terms no matter what. So, um, so I guess after the Ruiz fight, you you guys parted ways, or you- well, that was me with you know actually the Ruiz fight. I was really working with him more as a. As a ringside photographer, you know, uh, eyes out on things. Um, we had stepped away earlier, Stanley and I, earlier in Roy's career when he was working with Murad Muhammad. We weren't 100% happy with the way things were going business-wise with Roy and felt that we didn't want to be part of what we thought was not 100% to our liking and stepped aside from the legal side. Roy had asked me to stay on because I used to photograph his fights and he wanted me in a particular spot. He, Roy had this, this 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 strange thing where he had um, certain kids from his camp sitting in certain seats around the ring. And one of them was me as a ringside photographer in this particular spot. And their job was to yell out the time at a certain time and, and kind of you know, give him a little bit of bits of advice as he was fighting. So, um, the Ruiz fight was pretty much the last one I did did that with, um, and mainly because I was starting to work with Tarver as a lawyer, and that was more my uh, way of making a living than being a photographer. So right. that's kind of how that went. <laughs> well, I guess you 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 were definitely working with the right guy because uh, uh, Tarver kind of ended uh, Roy's pound for pound reign. Uh, a weird story because you know one of the things with Tarver is Tarver was the champion and we were negotiating the deal you know Taguardia was involved and and Tarver's like man I'm the champion why am I giving away all this stuff to Roy Jones and I said you know Antonio how long did I work with Roy yeah I said okay every time you would come around you said get him out of the gym he hates you he <laughs> does not like you so don't give him any reason why not to fight you? Because he really doesn't need this fight. Right. And you're not a good style for him. So don't give him any reason. You just can't. Otherwise, he's going to walk away and you're never going to get the fight. Period. And then he goes out there and has, you know, a very close decision lost to Roy. And then Roy, you know, and it's something that he was kind of kind of not happy with afterwards, gave, gave him the rematch. And it was on the same day as the Kentucky Derby and I, when he got, you know, stopped in the fight. I made the comment of uh, the Sports Illustrated should have a split cover. Um, Smarty Jones won the Derby, and Dummy Jones gave Tarver the rematch. <laughs> because why? And I was like, why would you? I mean, it's like it's like would Lennox Lewis give Ray Mercer a rematch? Are you kidding? Right, right. You know, sometimes exactly. you you know you win a fight that is close. Move on. <laughs> That's your lesson. Move on. Right, right. There might have been some hubris. You, you won. See you later. Yeah. Absolutely, but you you kind of went from one uh, pound for pound king to the next. As uh, you you ended up hooking up with uh, Mr. Floyd Mayweather, how did how did that come about? 
Um, the interesting part was I knew Floyd when he was an amateur um, back in the Olympic trial days, you know, and, you know, the, the first interaction I had with him, he, you know, he was looking for people to, to help lobby um, Bill Clinton to try to have his father be able to attend the Olympic Games if he was going to go to the Olympics. And um, I just watched and I, I knew he was a special kind of fighter and, and um, went to the Olympics, went to, to Atlanta. We actually, my wife and I worked as a, as a little Olympic uh, people who walked the fighters out and stuff at the request of the Cuban team because we were tight with them. And, um, you know, Floyd obviously had a, uh, a very negative experience there with the with the decision to the uh, uh, world champion at the time, and I think that was more because they had never seen Floyd on the international stage, so he didn't get the benefit of the doubt, so he got the the bronze medal. But then he signed with uh, some other people, and then when that deal was up with um, w- with his management, they decided that they were going to do a search for an attorney who could work with Floyd, and he wasn't going to have a manager. And it came down to me and one other guy, and uh, Leonard Ellerby came to me, and we were in Atlantic City. I think Rockman was fighting, and Roger was training him or something. And uh, they said, well, the last thing is you have to meet Floyd. And so, you know, I get taken up to a room and walk in, and Floyd's laying on a bed. And I remember he just, like, turns over. He goes, oh, hell, hell, I know John forever. (laughs) (laughs) You know? I don't know who was that, John. (laughs) So... uh, (laughs) So, you know, and, and our first our first task was to go, Leonard and I went to Top Rank's offices and met with Bob Aram and Todd DeBuff and started talking about what Floyd thought is the, the way his career should be going and why hasn't Floyd fought on pay-per-view. And, and boy, it was like two, two days of back and forth. Uh, honestly, I think it was a very productive learning process where we were finding out, you know, why certain decisions were made and and the opportunities that were presented to the former management that they didn't want to take because they the the deal that Floyd had at the time with Top Rank was that he was um, getting a a a very large, if not all, chunk of the HBO money, and people were saying, why are we going to take a chance on pay per view when we know what we got? Right. So right. Roy was never a pay-per-view. I mean, uh, Floyd was never a pay-per-view fighter. So part of what we floated at this meeting was we felt that there was a vastly under underserved um, African American middle class that really would glom onto Floyd Mayweather, and he could kind of become a big star. And it was, you know, Floyd's idea. It was. Leonard's idea was my idea. We're all like, yeah, this is a really good idea because it's kind of an underserved, you know, opportunity here. And Todd DeBuff agreed with it as well. Bob, not so much. <laughs> so that was, you know, and it just was, you know, you know, not to say we're right and he was wrong. It, it all kind of worked out for Floyd eventually, but um, that that was those were the discussions we talked about fighting Miguel Cotto and getting better fights and and this and that and uh you know that led to uh the Chop Chop Corley fight and then you know down the road to a Gotti fight which was the big you know that that's where really Floyd kind of made superstar step absolutely you know, that was, that, yeah i i remember that that was uh you know, it's funny. Floyd, you know, did kind of. I mean, it was obvious he had the, he had the ability, but he was you know struggling. You know, and Oscar was obviously the big the big uh, gun in Top Rank's roster at the time. And 
and and Floyd was really struggling in his shadow. And I remember that you know even though he'd been a, a two division champ, it's like he fights Corley and uh, to become the mandatory for Gaddy. That was like really the the guy who you guys had targeted to to beat to uh, take that next step up to be a star. And that was his first. That was the breakout. Fight. That was the fight that we targeted. Breakout fight, the pay per view fight, the you know the really the 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 second launch of Floyd Mayweather, and it was so right on. I mean, Gotti was a perfect opponent for him. Oof, that was a brutal and, fight, and, though, and John. It was, it was oh great because he, he had such a great performance. And afterwards, there was a big um, the WBC had a big night of champions down in Cancun, and you know Floyd had just gotten done being Gotti, and he comes in, and and what what was lovely to see is all the former champions and all these you know major names in boxing and they're all you know giving floyd all all his credit and, and plaudits and and pats on the back and um uh, a couple of fights later it was the juan manuel marquez fight i'll never forget uh, ross greenberg walked up to me and said you know floyd used to be so difficult to work with you know what what's changed i mean look at him he's taking marquez around you know and turn this way and turn that way and i said you know i said Part of this is is really just everyone else's opinion of Floyd catching up to Floyd's opinion of Floyd. Floyd always knew he was this, you know. Really, I, and I and I'm and I'm and I and I mean it in the, in the most positive way. Floyd always had the confidence. What 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 was you know? He knew what he was. He knew how good he was. I actually wrote a an article for Boxing Monthly in 1996, coming out of the Olympics, and said, "There's one guy you want out of this Olympic class." And everybody thought well, David Reed won the gold, and you got Vargas and these other guys. And I'm like, "It's Floyd Mayweather. This kid right. is special, right? You know, really." And I and I believed in him that much. And you know, you watch him as a pro, you know, and you're saying, "Yeah, he's really good." And and back then, that's when Floyd could, you know, his hands were good and he could punch, and you know, he was he was all that. But he just wasn't breaking through, right? The way he wanted, he wanted to be that superstar, and then he wasn't, and it was frustrating for him. And when Floyd's frustrated, it's not pretty, you know. It's a, it's a, it's a you know, and because you know, again, everybody wants to be loved, especially him. He's you know, we're all a little insecure in our own way. And all Floyd wanted people to do is say, "Man, you're great, right? You know, you really are that good." And and that happened. And then it became, "Well, we want someone to beat you because we don't like you." Now <laughs> 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 that, that was the rest of his career, where he pretty much embraced being the uh, the guy everyone wanted to see to lose, and, and and he would work so hard, no matter how much money he made, to make sure he didn't lose. Absolutely. Well, the one thing I remember about the Gaddy fight was, well, besides the fact that it was one of the most brutally one-sided fights, I mean, I, I was just, I've never seen anyone just, like a world-class fighter just get taken apart like Gaddy did that night. But my, what I remember is Floyd's reaction after the fight in the ring. I mean, he was really emotional. I remember he yeah, got on yeah, his knees, he, he, he was crying. And everything. Yeah, yeah, he was. No, that was really, he... That that to him was such a seminal moment in his career to to have that you know happen and 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 to have that kind of a performance. It was just so dominant and so good. And you know, I'll never before the fight was was starting. I'll never forget Larry Merchant. Look, he looks across the ring and he's like he's wearing those pillows because Floyd was wearing winning gloves and because he still he was starting to have hand problems. And I looked at Larry and I shrugged and I said, "What's it going to take him? Two more rounds?" <laughs> you know, I mean, that's how confident we were. Um, and 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 Gotti was an incredible warrior, as everyone knows, and and a, and a Hall of Famer and a and a and a great kid. I actually met Arturo back in '87 when I was working with Matthew Hilton because mm-hmm. the Hiltons and the and the the Gottis were all part of the same group. 
so I'm remembering this kid, and, and here he is fighting, you know, Floyd Mayweather, and it was brutal. Yeah, I yeah. Mean, it was a great performance by Floyd, and, uh, you know, off he went. Absolutely. Well, the next fight, he uh, he fought for the IBF title against Zab Judah, though, though Judah had lost to Baldemir in, in the previous fight. But yeah, yeah. That, that, was, that was a, a personal and then he almost lost his O in that fight. I mean, like when, when Roger Mayweather stepped up into the ring, I'm sure your jaw like hit the floor. <laughs> my jaw hit my floor. Listen, I, I was I was shooting the ringside, and who's behind me but Don King, and all I hear is, <laughs> they're going to DQ him. <laughs> and I was like, oh, Jesus, here we go. You know, and, and to Richard Steele's credit, and I know Richard Steele's taken a lot of hits over the years on, on how he handles things, and, and especially where, where Don King is concerned based on the, the stoppage of Chavez and Melcher Taylor, but here's a guy who, you know, who, the, 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 the memory that I have of that fight is, is before the fight, we all felt that there would become a point in the fight where Zab would get frustrated and saw Floyd. Mm. And we always felt that that was going to be the case. Well, when it happened, he hit him low, and then he hit him in the back of the head. When he hit him in the back of the head, that's when Roger lost it. Right. Now, Floyd... When all the, the everything hit the fan, what did Floyd do? Floyd walks over to a corner and stands in the corner and watches everybody come flying into the ring in this big brawl. Every moment of that fracas, Floyd Mayweather standing over in the corner. Right, just hoping so, it, open its hope. So Richard Steele finally gets everybody out of control, you know, in, in, under control, and he restarts the fight, and Floyd wins. Well, then the next thing I hear is they're gonna, you know, they're gonna hold Floyd's purse, and I get a call from Floyd. He's like, John, I want my money, man. Mm. You know, this got to be sorted out. I didn't do nothing wrong. Right. And I went to the commission and said, you know, you may have issues with Roger and Leonard and other people, but Floyd did not go look at the tape. He went and stood in that corner, and that's when I realized another thing about Floyd is the and there's something Conor McGregor said about him after the fight. He's like, what's what's really um, frightening is how calm he stays. Right, composure. He has that calm in the ring. He never. You know, for as much as he purportedly loses his temper other other places, you know, I remember he had like a thing with Zab at the at a podium once and things like that, and you could see that. And he never loses his temper in the ring. He's like totally locked on professional. You know, the 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 consummate professional fighter, and, and it would not deviate. And that's that's Floyd Mayweather. Absolutely, absolutely. Just wanted to ask you about um, the the De La Hoya fight, which was kind of the the king making fight for for Floyd. Um, just talk to me about the negotiations surrounding that fight. Were they really contentious? I mean, was it one of those things where you just like, listen, we'll give you everything you want, just give us the fight type of thing? Um, Al did most of the negotiations for that fight, but your latter point was correct. It was like kind of like what I said earlier about um, Tarver and, and and Jones. It's you know, we all knew that Oscar didn't like Floyd. Right. And Floyd didn't like Oscar, but we wanted that fight because we felt Floyd was going to go and beat up on Oscar. And so in that fight, when Richard Schaefer was negotiating on Oscar's behalf, he was pretty much being given whatever he wanted, including gloves, including the larger share of the money and, and the pay-per-view upside and everything else. So that was really, again, a, a question of, this is a fight that we want that, was best for Floyd, 
Um, Al did a great job. Leonard did a great job in negotiating it and getting the fight made because that was the important part. That bell needed to ring to let Floyd go out there and beat this guy. Absolutely. And that's what happened. I mean, you know, there there are people ringside who were like, you know, hopefully wishing, oh, Oscar was so close. Oscar, no, it wasn't that close. And I honestly believe that Floyd didn't clean up the way he could have late later in the fight because I think he wanted to was thinking like maybe I can do this again with this guy and beat him up some more right. in a rematch. Right. And that rematch never happened because Floyd took a temporary retirement at the time to let his body rest. But I was like, you know what? I think Floyd could have done a lot more damage to this guy, and he didn't do it. But, you know, I think he felt he was winning clearly, and, and you know, he beat Oscar De La Hoya. One of the, one of the, one of the fun facts was the, the, the judge that voted for De La Hoya was someone I identified as part of what I used to do for Floyd's fights is, is that the officials, and that's the official I said, this is going to be a problem. Mm-hmm. He was a WBC guy, and I was like, and he, and he went uh, and, and voted for Oscar, and 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 Roger in his in his glory. I think we were about three months later. We were out at a at a fight in um, Connecticut, and I said, Roger, that's the that's the judge over there who gave the fight to Oscar. And you know, you know what Roger would say? You don't know. <laughs> you know, it's just about boxing. You don't know about boxing. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, that was that. That guy and C.J. Ross were the two that I picked, and I said this is not this is not going to go well. And uh, unfortunately for C.J. Ross, it cost her a career. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Canelo. So yeah. absolutely, that happens. But you got You always want to have two good ones. <laughs> you may not, you may not get all three, but you want to have two good ones and a good ref. So absolutely. Just two two more about Floyd. I mean, the, the two two big fights after Oscar. I mean, with Manny. Just from your perspective, why was that one so difficult to make? Um, personal opinion was that Top Rank wanted to make sure that they got as much out of Pacquiao mileage out of Pacquiao as they could, because I feel that deep down, the matchmakers, the people who really knew boxing at Top Rank, felt that Mayweather was that good, and that Pacquiao would have a tough time beating him. Um, so that that's my personal opinion. Um, I, you know, everyone's saying it happened too late or whatever. I, I just think that that was the inevitable outcome, no matter when the fight took place. Um, there was all the issues about drug testing, which I think kind of revolutionized the sport going forward. True. Um, so you know, it, it's one of those things that happened, and when it did. Uh, unfortunately, it wasn't as good a fight as people were hoping it would be. But again, as I always said to people, if if if, if, if people are cheering, that's not good for Floyd. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the way I, the way I looked at that fight, I was just like, if Marquez gave Pacquiao as 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 many problems as he did in pretty much every one of their fights, I mean, you know, Floyd yeah. did everything Marquez did like ten times better. So. Um, I always thought Floyd would win that one pretty easily as well. No, I mean, listen, and one of the things is Floyd had a lot of respect for Manny. Manny was a powerful guy. You know, mm-hmm. Manny, Manny could hit, and Manny had a, had a style that was very offensive. The, the real difference in that fight for me was Floyd's defensive prowess and his ability to, to give different looks at different times in the fight. He made adjustments, as right. he does in every fight. And, and that was the, the real genius behind them, the, the career of Floyd Mayweather is – no one I've ever seen ever 
has made as many adjustments during a fight as he did on his own, right. just based on his his knowledge of boxing and styles and you know. Uh, say what you will about anybody outside the ring as a boxer. Floyd Floyd Mayweather Jr. was a genius in the ring. Absolutely. 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 So I guess the, the one last one with, with Floyd is obviously the, the, the fight that happened this year with uh, McGregor. How did that one come about, and uh, what were negotiations like with Dana White in the UFC? That was really, again, That was all the negotiations were done by Al. Um, I got involved on a, a, a number of topics. The main one was the gloves and going and getting the, you know, making the argument in front of the commission about getting the glove size down from 10 ounce to 8 ounce. And that was because, you know, I remember when that, when that came up, everyone thought it was a big PR ploy and this and that. And it was simply, you know, we felt that, you know, Floyd was going to stop this guy, and he's going to stop him better with eight ounce gloves. <laughs> you know, seriously. I mean, people are like, like, you know, this is McGregor's advantage: the smaller gloves, the bigger puncher. Blah 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 blah. It's like you have no idea. I mean, Floyd, because of his hand problems, really didn't punch as hard as he wanted to because he didn't feel he could. And in this fight, he's like, man, this is my last fight. <laughs> it doesn't matter. You know? I don't yeah, mean it. People made such a big deal about it too, and and I was just my thing was like, you know, ever since they they've sanctioned the UFC and they're allowing guys as big as Brock Lesnar to wear like four to six ounce gloves and hit people with them, I'm like, you know, the the, the glove size to me, you know, you can let fighters wear, you know, boxers wear four ounce gloves. I mean, it's well, yeah. Fun, funny enough, going back years, they've already muddied that. the waters with that. Yeah, one of the questions Floyd says, John, how come they get to wear four ounce gloves? I'd be hurting people with four ounce gloves. Why do they get to wear four ounce gloves and we got to wear like eights and tens? And I said, no, great question. Um, and and that's something that that he always kind of thought was odd. And and making the arguments to the commission, it was just that. It's like you know this guy, you know Conor McGregor's been wearing four ounce gloves. Mayweather his whole career wore eights. You know this is because it's at 154 pounds. It's supposed to be 10 ounce gloves. And and one of the things I, I, I really dawned on me after Spence's fight with Brooke is I had just been over there and I was like, you know, 147-pound fighters don't come in at 147 pounds into the ring. These guys are big. Right. So if you have an issue, you know, you should have an issue with everybody. You know, with these welterweights can wear eight-ounce gloves, but they're coming in 170 pounds. Right, right. And Floyd Mayweather's not going to weigh more than 150 pounds. <laughs> that's just that's what he weighs and he's not going to come in any bigger McGregor was going to be a little bigger than that but with Floyd it's like there's he's never you know never budged really off of that figure that's his natural walk around weight and he wasn't going to go senselessly put on more weight for any reason absolutely well you of know, course so this, with Floyd you know uh releasing these training videos and so on I mean I got to ask you you know do you think that there's any possibility that he comes back for any more fights I don't, and I hope not. Right. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm real happy with him at 50, you know. I think that he's done everything he's ever needed to do. I, financially, I hope that everything's good there. I mean, it's one of those things, you know, you, you got to pay. As Brendan Ingle, Nassim Hamed's trainer once, you know, like Naz was like, Brendan, why, why do you always talk about how, you know, how much tax you pay? He goes, because if you're paying, paying tax, you're paying effing taxes, you're making effing money, you know? And, <laughs> and, and that's part, that's part of it, you know? And, and, you know, with Floyd, he's, he's made a, a, a ton of money, and he's 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 been, I think, overly generous to a lot of people around him, um, and 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 so be it. Um, but he's got a, 
you know, his kids to take care of and him to take care of the rest of his life. One, one of the things that I'm really, really happy uh, um, to see with Floyd is the amount of traveling he's done. Because, you know, Floyd's almost like one of these, like almost like these Michael Jackson type kids who grew up without a childhood and without a life. Mm-hmm. in a sense, where, you know, Michael Jackson's always going to be a singer. I remember when they were the, the Jackson Five and Gary, Indiana, and I'm from Chicago. And, and with Floyd, it's the same thing. It's like this kid from Grand Rapids, Michigan, and all he's ever done mm-hmm. is box. And to see pictures of him at the pyramids on the Great Wall, you know, in Paris and things, I'm like, yeah, go see the world, man, because you didn't, you didn't see it the first time around. Right. You know, right. you had to wait to be 40 years old and, you know, you know late, late 30s to, to go experience the world. You go do that. Take it all in and enjoy the fruits of, of your labor because you worked hard. I mean, that, that's, that's the thing that people didn't see. They, they, they saw Floyd Mayweather on the Instagram with his cars and his jewelry and this and that. They didn't see Floyd Mayweather at 2 o'clock in the morning, you know, you know go, going into his trunk, taking out his boots and running in, 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 in Vegas. Right. And that's what he was going to do because, you know, it's one of the discussions that Leonard and I have all the time about Mayweather promotions. I said, everybody wants to be on the money team, but no one wants to do the hard work and dedication part. <laughs> you know, and that's just, you know, that's kind of life. You know, it's like people want something for nothing. And, and, and with Floyd, it's like, dude, no one was giving you cars. No one was giving you watches. No one was giving you anything. You earned everything you ever got. And Absolutely. the only way you earned it was by putting your nose to the grindstone and getting into that gym and doing that road work and doing what you needed to do because that's what you're great at and you knew what it took you know and and it's a, it's a it's an incredible example it's one that I've used you know with my own daughter it's like you know look at this guy look what he's sacrificed the, the, you know he, he doesn't need to do this but he does it because of pride because he wants to be the best at what he does and he's not going to let anybody take that away from him so you know take take it take that positive for what it is Absolutely, absolutely. Well, he was the pound for pound king for many, many, many years, uh, and you know, he enjoyed the fruits of that hard work. And uh, that brings us to the present. And once again, it seems like you're representing a guy who most expect uh, to be to pick up the torch and uh, be the best pound for pound fighter in the world. That's uh, Vasily Lomachenko. Um, tell me how that representation came about. Um, I got a call from who was it? Grant Elvis was um, had a relationship with Agus Klimas, and Agus's lawyer at the time, um, David Berlin, was going to be the commissioner in New York, and he was looking for someone to replace him. And I was recommended and talked to Agus. And uh, ironically, when Loma came out of the Olympics, um, he was talking to Top Rank, and he was also talking to K2 Ukraine, which was Vitaly and Vladimir's company. And Vitaly decided that, based on what Lomo really wanted to do, which was fight for that world title in his first fight, that uh, you know he couldn't do that for him. But he said, "But let me do something for you. Let me introduce you to my lawyer. Let him take a look at whatever contracts you're going to do to uh, you know to make sure you get a, a, on a good start." So I, you know, got these contracts, and one was a top-ranked contract, and the other one was a contract with Agus Klimas, his manager. And I'm like, okay, promotional contract, good manager contract, man, not so good. <laughs> <laughs> so, and then, then a couple of years later, here comes Agus saying, you know, hey, you know, why don't you come and work with us with Sergey and uh, and Loma and um, Sergey and, being and that's the, 
Sergey Kovalev, right? Yeah, and 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 Lomachenko is is what my wife and daughter call my man crush. I mean, you know, <laughs> he he is in the line of Roy Jones and Floyd Mayweather as a fighter that you know. Again, I go watch him train. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, it, it, it's it's he's really a good dude and a very good fighter. And I'll say this about this fight Saturday night: uh, this is no this is no pushover. You know, oh the weight difference is too much. Rigondeau is an incredibly talented guy. I, I've known a lot of Cuban fighters. I actually kind of learned about boxing in Cuba with with Alcide Segura and, and and that team back in the '90s. And I was watching Rigondo come up as a as an amateur, and I remember this guy's like the best body punching amateur I've ever seen. Absolutely. And and to differentiate him from the other Cubans, this is a guy who's never gotten out of shape, never been blown up in weight. You know, does he have a stinky style? No, he's got a style that wins. Right. <laughs> you know that right. that's what he's done. He's he's won, and sometimes when he's had to, he can punch. But he's not always had to do that, so why is he going to do something he doesn't have to take a risk to do? Now, Saturday night, my, you know, I, I believe in Loma. I think that Loma's going to win the fight. However, the big cautionary tale for me is Loma's got to really be on his game and not try to be the entertainer and go out like he has in these other fights where he's felt the opposition wasn't giving him too much and he kind of let them hit him to make openings so he could, you know, hit, hit him back and finish him off. And you really can't do that with uh, Rigondo. You can't give him openings because this guy can really hit. Yeah, he's got a bazooka for a left hand for sure. Oh, man. So, you know, I, I'm really looking forward to this. Um, I think it's two great fighters. Um, obviously, I'm favoring Lomachenko because I think he's the, you know, he, he's the real deal. I think he's uh, an incredible person. As well as a fighter, I mean, this is how humble he is. After one of the fights, we were having dinner, and I said, "You know, like it's got quiet." And I looked at him. I said, "Thanks for making boxing fun again." <laughs> and, he says, and, he, and he's like, "Don't put so much pressure on me." <laughs> and you know, it's it's kind of cute, but it really is. It there's certain guys that you know, you, you go to their fights, and it's like, wow, you know, it's really just so wow. And that's how Roy was. That's how Floyd was. I mean, almost Floyd even more inspiring than, than you know, because his sparring sessions that you would go to were more like the McGregor fight. He just be walking guys down in the gym and, you know, doing what he does. It was incredible. Mm-hmm. And Lomachenko's the same way. You just look at this guy and the and the and the, and the different training regimes that he does. I mean, like when when you know he does his little keepy uppies with his little sack, and then he does this like this thing with this rubber-tipped arrow that he knocks up in the air a hundred times in a row where he starts again. It's, you know, to watch his relationship with his father and how they've, like, you know, from from his dance training to the, you know, acrobatics to everything that's come into this, it's like, you know, just created this incredibly special fighter. But he's fighting a really special fighter on Saturday night. So, um, you know, I, I, I got to admit, I got my fingers crossed, and then I'm a Lomachenko guy. Um, but I, I, I just think this is an incredible challenge for him and a, and a great, uh, a great night for boxing. Absolutely. 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 Um, sorry, sorry for getting a little bit excited about it. But, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> I'm excited for that fight. I mean, I think it's going to be incredible. Yeah. Everybody for getting it made. I mean, these are the kind of fights that people avoid, you know, this like, uh, I don't need that. 
Right. You know, I don't need right. this guy. He's a dangerous guy. I mean, for Lomachenko, he, he didn't need Rigondo. Right. What do you need Rigondo for? You know, this boring guy, whatever, Cuban, whatever. But no, Loma wants to fight the best. This this guy is like, he gets mad because he's like, it's, it's, Sergey Kovalev was the same way early. It's like, it's like, I had to train that hard. I want to fight somebody good. <laughs> you know, I want, I, want, I want someone to put up a fight. Right. You know, right. And, 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 make, and, and make me fight. So this because one, that's, was it a difficult fight to put together? I mean, you know, you're, you're dealing with Rock Nation. You're dealing with, um, you know, yeah, Rigondo. I, I, we, we, we let Top Rank handle all that. I mean, <laughs> we, we just kind of, you know, my, my, my role in a lot of these things is putting the cherries on top. Right. To be honest, I mean, it's kind of like, you know, you got different levels of, you have Top Rank, you have the manager, and then at the end I kind of like, you know, get involved in certain things and and the officials and and little little tidbits around, but uh, I'm not going to take credit where where I, where uh, it's not deserved. I mean, these deals are are done after strategy sessions, and we say, yeah, that's the fights we we like to see. You know, when Agus is 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 in for it, and so is is Loma, then they get made. Right, right. The fighters have to want it. If the fighters want it, it, it usually gets made. So, and, and the guy just he, you know, that's a, the, the great thing here is we got two guys who want to be great. Right. That's really what it comes down to, and 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 my hats off to both of them. No matter how the fight goes on Saturday night, the fact that they both accepted the challenge because oh. it's very rare in our in our you know in, in the way boxing is run today for that to happen. You know, it's the same like with 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 Vladimir and, and Anthony Joshua. You know, who would have thought that that Joshua was going to accept you know Klitschko as an opponent? Who's who who thought that Klitschko was going to go up against this young guy? And look what we got—a fight of the year. An incredible display of, of heavyweight boxing. Yeah, I remember on, on Facebook I posted it just, you know, never, never actually thinking it might happen. Like when, when Fury fell out of the uh, the Klitschko rematch, I was just like, great, now we can make Joshua Klitschko. Let's, let's see it happen. And sure enough, it got made. I was like, really psyched with that happened. Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, and, and it, was a, it was a great night for boxing and for both fighters. Absolutely. You know, it's, it's it's one of those things where where Joshua came out of it having won. Vladimir came out of it. You know, I remember we were, he was still in the ring and he was with, with Gilberto Mendoza and Gilberto has his hand on his shoulder and he's trying to console him a little bit and we're both like, hey, we're real so proud of you. He goes, I just lost. How are you proud of me? I was like, dude, you just answered every question that everyone had about your career tonight. Every question. Vladimir's chin, Vladimir's endurance, Vladimir, you know, too old, too this, too that. I said, you answered every question against that guy. Look at him. Right, right. <laughs> Look at him. You had him down. You know, this fight was supposed to be over in the fourth round when you went down the first time. Right. Did you think he had him? Did you think he had him late in the fifth? Yeah, I did. He I actually him did think he had him. Yeah, he, I mean, Josh was out on his feet for a, year, for a round and a half, and it's just, uh, I mean, I don't know if if Vladimir didn't have it in him to finish. Vitaly says that he kind of told him to just not go too fast and too hard. I think Vitaly was worried he would punch himself out. But, you know, and, and Joshua, you know, he, he was a young guy in shape and very determined. I mean, and he, he, he weathered it and got through it and, you know, got Vladimir in the end, and Vladimir. You know, I was just glad he, he ended on his feet, and and uh, like I said, showed showed everybody everything they ever needed to know about Vladimir Klitschko. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, listen. Uh, one one more thing I wanted to to kind of ask you about, just because uh, I was at a small firm uh, that that had a sports law practice, and then I got a chance to look at the structure of the NFL and and how much revenue they generate for each franchise, and and, and it's staggering. Um, 
And I don't know if you got a chance to see the, the recent article in the Sports um, Business Journal about Top Rank's deal with ESPN. They're saying it's like an eight-figure deal, and you look at the UFC, they're renegotiating their television deal, and it's, they're, they're asking for nearly half a billion dollars. Um, and the article also pointed out uh, Top Rank's fights are outperforming the UFC's fights in the ratings. Um, they also pointed out that, you know, like other sports, you know, fans tune in. Um, the ratings are highest when the best are fighting the best. Um, we found out that boxing's demographic uh, is, is much younger than anyone had anticipated. Um, and, you know, thank you, PBC, you know, for, for putting, uh, for putting uh, boxing on uh, network TV again. So you have all these measurables now. Um, but uh, the, the article pointed out that, you know, the premium networks are now starting to kind of hoard fighters in particular divisions. Um, so that they can, you know, kind of attach them to the network and make, you know, great fights, you know, for, for years to come. Uh, maybe that's, you know, buoyed by the success of the, the Super Six or the World Boxing Super Series, not sure. But, um, and they broke down, it was interesting, they broke down each weight division uh, by the top fighters and who their promoters were. And not surprisingly, you know, most of the top fighters are represented by like a handful of, of promoters or, or entities with the PBC. Um, so to me, like the obvious question, you know, why don't the top seven or eight promotional entities or, or, or fighter reps, you know, get together, form a league so that, you know, and, and make sure that like the top guys are, are, are constantly fighting each other, maybe tournament style every year. Um, and, and, you know, maybe sell, you know, different weight divisions to different networks. And I can't imagine that boxing, if boxing came together, that you wouldn't get like a nine-figure or even ten-figure TV deal for that, where there'd be enough money for 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 everyone. Uh, um, you know, instead of what we have is you know separate promoters, you know, negotiating separate deals and, and so on. I mean, I mean, obviously this is a perfect world, but I mean, uh, you, you ever see that as likely to happen in the sport of boxing, where where people you know kind of come together and wise up, where you know there's more money together as opposed to, to separate deals. It's about as likely as a boxers union. <laughs> so, uh, listen, I, I think part of part of the problem is is as you say, there are a limited number of of major promoters, and and uh, I think on any given day, you can't say that three of them actually get along mm. or, or or see things the same way as the others. So that that makes it tough. Um, and I think the other problem that boxing has from a standpoint of a league or anything else is we still value and give premium to undefeated records and 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 a few losses, whereas you know, as Aram always says, like the UFC, these guys can you know they can lose and they're still marketable because people buy into them. And boxing isn't there yet, and I don't see it really getting there in the near future. I mean, Pacquiao was a bit of a an outlier on that one, but you know, a guy like Floyd, I mean, undefeated had to be, or no one was watching Floyd Mayweather. Mm-hmm. That was that was the whole the whole draw was can this guy beat Floyd? Right. We want to see that all go, you know. And that's, I mean, even with McGregor is as ludicrous as it sounds after you've seen the fight, you know. <laughs> going into it, people are like, yeah. You know, this guy gonna get him. This guy's gonna get him. It's like, all right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and and and, and that's really what I, I the way I look at it is is like you know what there is that premium. Anthony Joshua, you know Wilder. Should that fight happen? Yeah. Is it gonna happen? Not in the near future. Right. Why, if you're Eddie Hearn, are you gonna take Anthony Joshua and put him in with Deontay Wilder when you're putting eighty thousand people in seats against whoever? Right. You know. 
<laughs> and this guy really had no amateur background to speak of, won a gold medal, and has had a limited pro career. I mean, why, where's the rush if you're Eddie Hearn? Now, if you're Deontay Wilder, you're in a rush now, but where, where, what rush were you in to fight Vladimir Klitschko when you were coming up? You right. can't, you know, be fair. Right. So, you know, again, a league, while it sounds, wow, that would be great, it's just this this type of sport, it's such an individual sport, it's not a team sport, it, it's hard to make a team out of a bunch of individuals like that because there just is no team dynamic. And I, and I think it will be very, very difficult. Um, and for me, it's it's not something I've given a lot of thought to just because I think it's a little bit pie in the sky to even come up and we're – well, we're lucky we get different promoters working together and different networks working together, never mind uh, having a league. So, um, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I was, I was hopeful, John, when I saw the, uh, the Boxing Promoters Association, when I saw like promoters kind of getting – I mean, I, I know that the motivation of that wasn't unselfish and for the greater good of the sport. It was because they felt Sometimes like, we get excited about, about you know, nice ideas in the abstract, but then when you try to put it together and, and, and have it work out, it just doesn't – doesn't get traction, so um, good luck with that. <laughs> like I said, like I said you know, all the time, you know, how many times have you heard from, from clients and fighters, like, yeah, there should be a fighter's union. Yeah, well, that, that's because you're the guy who's in the eight-round fight making, you know, five grand. You don't want to talk about the guy who's making 50 million. He ain't right. going to get in a union with you. Right, Why? right. What does he need you for? Yeah, there's there's definitely such a such a, a gulf between like the the, the top one percent in, in boxing and and the guys uh, fighting in the club shows. Exactly, and I'm not saying that people don't you know that boxers don't think about the, about other boxers. They start promotional companies and give them chances and stuff like that. Les Floyd has done, Oscar's done, and, and and a few others, you know. So that that's their way of giving back. But it's not like oh yeah, let's all you know. Let, let, let let's have social socialized boxing. No, it's not going to work. <laughs> Well, John, I really appreciate your time. I know you've got a, a big fight coming up and a, and a flight to catch and so on in the morning. So I really appreciate you taking the time uh, to, to speak to me tonight. And uh, good luck on Saturday. And I'll, I'll see you uh, hopefully uh, at the fights. Thank you so much. And please keep the legal updates coming because uh, it's, it's something that I'm sure that a lot of the boxing fans are interested in. It's, uh, it's, it's our business as, as lawyers and, and to, to keep track of these things and the trends in our business. But it also uh, gives everybody a little bit of a, a flavor of, of how things are done and uh, not so much in the back room anymore as it used to be. Absolutely. I appreciate that, John. All right. Well, take care, my man. Okay. Have a great night. You too. Bye. Bye-bye. And that will do it for this edition of the Boxing Esquire podcast. I really appreciate John Hornauer uh, taking the time to speak with me. Uh, really enjoyed that conversation. I want to wish him luck this coming Saturday. If you want to leave any comments on iTunes or SoundCloud or at the BoxingEsquire.com website, I really appreciate it. Um, until next time, see you later.